Welcome to the Brisbane Property Podcast with your hosts, Melinda and Scott Jennison from Streamline Property Buyers, your local Brisbane property specialists. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Brisbane Property Podcast. A little bit of a change, I'll obviously start with that weather update as I usually do, but a little bit cloudy today and we've got a little bit of rain around. There's a bit of rain on the eastern side of Australia and we're about to cop it here I think today and a bit of tomorrow. So it's actually a good change. It's very dry at the moment and we do need that rain. Yeah, it'll be good to see that grass go green again. Welcome back, everybody. We've got a um, great episode planned. In fact, we've got an episode where we're going to spend the majority of the time targeting in on a query that we received from one of our listeners, Charlie. Uh, Charlie's from Sydney and he listens to our podcast. He's a big fan. Um, But he did say in a recent podcast, we talked a lot about quality over quantity. And we also mentioned blue chip suburbs in Brisbane have outperformed when we look back historically at the performance of growth here in Brisbane. So um, sorry, Charlie has also referred to some research by others, um, which has indicated that in the long run, all areas perform quite similarly and distance from the CBD may not be um, the determinant of capital growth. So um, what is interesting about some of that research, Charlie, that you referred to is that whilst it talks about all capital cities, a lot of the uh, detail from that research when we look at distances from the CBD is based on Sydney and Melbourne. So today we're going to unpack um, what this means for Brisbane and we're going to take a little bit of a, a look back at history once again to answer this question to help listeners understand more about Brisbane and we keep talking about it why it is different because you cannot assume Brisbane is the same city as Sydney and Melbourne. So that's what we're going to unpack today. Yeah, thanks, Charlie, for listening in. And, and you've obviously um, got the attention of Melinda because when there's um, research um, thrown out there and people need to check it and double check it and triple check it and make sure it is right, Melinda's probably the person to do that um, that research side of things. So um, it definitely created a bit of interest. And as Melinda said, that history lesson, lesson I guess, a little bit today take you back about and get you understanding what is different about Brisbane compared to other areas, um, what and why, um, when people do, as you said, talk about that distance from the CBD, which we do get questioned quite a lot as well. So All the time. People, you know, they say, this is my budget and this is the distance from the CBD that I want to purchase, which, you know, it's, it's something that we're always correcting people on because distance from the CBD alone Um, Should not be the only indicator, especially in a suburb like Brisbane. It's one of the things that we can use, but it's not the only determinant of what makes a quality investment. And that's what we're going to unpack today. Yeah, I think I touched on it once before about um, when people talk about that radial distance from a CBD. And if you go too far to the east, you'll end up in Moreton Bay. So um, (laughs) And to the west west of Brisbane, you've got mountain ranges, so there's no you know, houses to buy. That's so right. it's not like Brisbane is a radial city. We're not a circular city. Uh, we do have a northern corridor, which extends from the CBD all the way through to Caboolture, which is the um, northernmost tip in the Moreton Bay region. And then we've got a southwestern corridor between Brisbane and Ipswich, and that runs in line with the Brisbane River. And then we've got a southeastern corridor. It sort of extends between Brisbane and the Gold Coast, to be honest. Um, it's almost fully developed yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's pockets of development all the way through that channel and that incorporates a lot of that Logan uh, region and the northern parts of the Gold Coast region. So um, certainly not a circular city, um, three different corridors of development and that's something for people to be aware of. So it's, it's changing Brisbane. Um, it has changed over time. 
Um, I think, you know, another thing we do talk about is, that, you know, the 2032 Olympics, how that's going to change migration, how the population is changing dramatically at the moment. Um, so I guess if we dive backwards and we go back in time and get a bit of an understanding on that change in population. Um, so, you know, if you, if you go right back um, in the early 50s, I believe, um, you know, we're sitting around 400, just over 400,000 people um, living in Brisbane. And then, you know, right through to now, uh, I think we're up to about two and a half million. Is that correct? Yeah. So the current population is about two and a half million people. And of course, you know, with population projections, which is something that we can look um, forward to get an idea of what a city might look like in the future, um, within the next sort of 10 to 15 years, um, it's projected that our population will reach just under that $3 million, uh, not $3 million, $3 million people um, mark. So, you know, we are a growing city and we have talked about in previous episodes just how much, you know, we continue to grow, especially uh, during a pandemic where we are receiving a lot of migrants from interstate. So a lot of people relocating, especially from New South Wales and Victoria into southeast Queensland. Um, a lot of that is coming directly into Brisbane as well. So definitely, you know, strong population growth continuing regardless of the fact that the international borders are closed. I wouldn't be surprised if that goes higher. Um, that's that's my sort of tip on that one. I wouldn't be surprised if our population actually increases from that um, with things like we talk about the 2032 Olympics, migration, COVID, people migrating up this way, um, the weather that I talk about every week <laughs> <laughs> and how I spruik about that. So anyway, you can see how it's changed over that that time period. Um, I guess one of the, the things then we talk about is how is Brisbane different? So when we talk about kilometres from the CBD, if we go back into the history and you look at, for example, and we've got some photos that if you look at aerial shots, for example, um, and these are historical aerial, aerial shots, not just now, but if, if some of the shots we've got are comparing Brisbane to like um, Carlton and those areas in Melbourne um, and how properties are, and the density. So the amount of space that we then get around our house with our land compared to what Melbourne and Sydney, um, what they get and the difference in the density of the two cities is, is amazing to have a look at. And I think that came about um, and we touched on this in an episode very early on when we talked about the history of Brisbane or how Brisbane became the city that it was. Um, you know, we had a big fire through the city in the 1800s uh, and we were developing areas of higher density living like Sydney and Melbourne, but the fire ripped through those locations and off the back of that, um, there was new policy introduced which ensured that houses were built far enough apart to avoid another catastrophe like that ripping through the city and that's how these 16 perch blocks became to be with a minimum width between blocks of 10 metres and then those that were more wealthy actually bought two which were your 810 square metre blocks or your 32 square metre blocks and they built one house across two titles and they're the homes that we now would call splitter blocks. So you know it's interesting to see that um, the way we have developed was purposeful. It was a you know purposeful lower density um, arrangement that was put in place uh, right back in the 1800s. It's interesting when we talk about, and if look, if you haven't heard that episode and just to touch on it quickly, generally here in Brisbane now, standard sort of, so, roughly, standard sizes, I'm only going to do it roughly, I'm not going to go to the exact metre, but you've got roughly a 405, which is your old 16 perch. You've got your 810s, which are 32 perch, which they used to be in the old old way. Um, and there's a, there's a lot more 607s, sort of 610, that mark. 
they're fairly standard. We do get some questions from people sometime that inquire from down south to say, oh, I want about 500 square metres. So you're sort of in the middle. There are some of those in some of the newer suburbs that are being developed. But generally, as you get into the older parts, I suppose, if you like to say, of throughout Brisbane, your 405s, your 810s, and your 607s. Yeah, so the 405s, 810s, all within the areas where the character homes are, all pre-war homes built prior to 1946. Your 607s started to come into effect in the post-war era, Mm -hmm. where you've got um, some of the sort of chamfer board shacks or tin and timber shacks where, you know, people really couldn't afford to build um, much of a home, but they could get it larger blocks. So they were looking at 607 square metre blocks. So it's a purposefully built city. The size of the land is more representative of the location that you're buying. But, you know, it's it's interesting because this low density suburbanisation of um, Brisbane was the result of a very advanced public transport network. Um, And if we look back at history, we know that the first set of horse-drawn tramways in Brisbane were constructed back in 1887. Electric trams followed in 1895. And most of the city's rail network was laid out by 1890. Yeah, and even in like in 1904, if if, if you want to search that, it's actually quite an amazing photo. Um, If you look at the Brisbane suburban network, there's a rail and a tram um, image there which shows you the layout and this is back in 1904 mm. um, and it's actually very very smart the way they had it all laid out and the way that you could access different areas and I think that's a little bit about how Brisbane did become a bit more spread out to allow people to actually live in areas further away from the CBD. Yeah, when you've got a very efficient public transport network, it enables people to move around the city very easily. And this is a big difference that uh, Brisbane had. We were a very um, spread out, you know, developed city, if you like. We, We had the ability to develop further away from the CBD because we had excellent um, advanced infrastructure to get into where the jobs were created. So this is a big point. It's not just about distance from the CBD, it's accessibility to where those jobs might be located. Now, that's definitely something that a lot of investors fail to understand. um, But getting accessibility right um, is one of the things that we would always focus on for investors. So then we, we, I mean, we do talk a little bit more now as well about our Um, our transport infrastructure and how it is actually changing as well. So um, obviously back in 1904, very, very well organised, very well set out and it allowed, as you say, people to move out further. Um, You know, people, different areas where you you would live, Um, for example, people living on on high ridges and hills as opposed to living in the lower lying areas and you generally found that you're you're well-off people um, and, and your, your workers, um, your workers would probably be in the low-lying area, but your well-off people would probably buy on the ridges and the hills um, yeah. to be up higher. And that's exactly what history confirms for Brisbane. It wasn't, you know, where in the city people lived. It was more related to the topography, how high people lived. You know, remember, Brisbane's a river city. We, we flood and people were aware of this very early on. We've had some significant flood events over um, the years since we were first, um, you know, or civilization first moved into the city. So, you know, the dispersion of social class became more so uh, determined by the height that the, the people were located within a suburb. And, you know, those that were wealthy were in the elevated locations, but the workers 
um, were generally in the cottages, much smaller uh, properties in low-lying areas. Mm, that's 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 actually interesting. Sort of, it's not well. It's sort of in a way where you live, but a little bit more how you live. Um, so if you're up on high higher ground, you're a little more elite, I guess. I suppose they would say. Yeah. Um, so if we come forward a little bit, then into probably the early '60s, 1960, um, and, and around the era when Clem Jones was the Lord Mayor of, of Brisbane, um, and there was a big change then in the transport side of things. Mm, yeah. So basically. Um, Brisbane City Council changed its transport policy and, in fact, um, they hired an American transport consultant called Wilbur Smith um, to devise a new transport plan for the city. Now, retrospectively, some might look back and and wonder whether this is the right move, but um, basically they produced a report. It was known as Brisbane Transportation Study and it was um, written by Wilbur Smith. It was published in 1965 and the recommendation was made to close most suburban railway lines, close the tram and the trolley bus networks and instead construct a massive network of freeways through the city. So remember this aligned with when motor vehicles became, you know, more prevalent, uh, people were starting to buy their own motor vehicles to move around the city and of course being a very low density city but very spread out, accessibility by road was actually very, very easy back in the 1960s. Yeah, and that and that put areas like Gabba, for example, where they had a massive, like a vast interchange of, of freeways coming in. Now, Gabba is a stone's throw from the city, just on the south side. <laughs> um, you know, all these freeways coming to that area and it you know, back then, obviously, it probably worked. Um, but then what it's done is it actually made a lot more congestion. Um, so if you look forward into the future, what's happened is it's a lot more congested now um, and it needs more public transport, hence the Cross River Rails and metros and things that are happening now, nowadays. Yeah, so it's interesting to look back to, to, you know, get an understanding of why decisions were made. But, um, you know, after that study was published, um, all trams and trolley buses were eliminated between 1968 and 1969, um, and that rapidly changed the way people moved around the city. There was, there's no doubting that you know people became much more reliant on cars. And at that time, um, you know, when the population, let's just look back in around 1965, the population was still only around the 700 thousand um, mark. So we were still a fairly young city. Um, we certainly weren't a densely populated city, but we were geographically quite widespread. So it enabled people to be able to jump in their car, drive for, you know, 15, 20 minutes, be in their workplaces and not get caught in traffic. But of course, we all know that, you know, a city's continued growth, um, more and more people moving into an area creates more and more congestion, especially when the, the main transport method is by surface road vehicle. And, you know, we've seen over time that the number of cars on the roads has rapidly increased as Brisbane has continued to develop. Um, and if we compare back in, you know, a population of around 700,000 people to today where we've got nearly two and a half million people and not a lot of advancement in our public transport infrastructure over that time, you can get an understanding as to why we are seeing a lot more congestion throughout the city as people are still very dependent on, you know, roads to get into and out of the CBD. So you can you can sort of, I mean, I think I, I'm sort of looking at a bit of a pattern and seeing that, you know, that, that early design of, 
um, public transport through trains and, and trams and set up that allowed people to spread out further. Um, then through the early 60s, where they did the freeways, again, allowing people to spread out further, everything seems to be getting further and further all, all the time away from the CBD. And then if you jump forward to probably a next one, and it was interesting when you're flicking through those, um, some uh, information there, Melinda, and I look at the, and we didn't look at this previously, but the population when we talked about um, early days for the 400, 400-odd thousand up to two and a half, the next time frame, which is around 1974, which is when the floods hit, that was when our population actually for the first time went over 1 million. Yeah, and I think that was a, another, you know, significant event in the history of Brisbane and also in the property markets throughout Brisbane because, you know, we were a much more populated city at that time compared to the Great Floods in the 1800s. And, of course, it fundamentally changed the way people wanted to live. You know, it scared a lot of people off um, some of the, the low-set homes that's for sure it also scared a lot of people off in of buying and wanting to live in low-lying areas and this is where we started to see a motivation of people to to want to move to middle and outer ring suburbs um large shopping malls started to uh, crop up and you know population started to boom in the areas much further away from the CBD now we are still talking 1970s so we're still talking in an era where um, it was very easy to jump in the car and drive across town without getting caught in traffic. And, you know, I have memories uh, growing up in the outer suburbs and, you know, my my dad was a, um, a city worker and he used to jump in the car and off he'd go to work every day in the car and that's just the way it was and that's what most people did. They lived in the suburbs and they commuted by car because it wasn't congested. It was easy to do that. Yeah, and I think I think you can see why people did it. I mean, the, again, that distance away from the suburb, they could actually move out into the suburbs. They had the the roads; they could drive everywhere. Um, they could get a, a block of land, build a their dream sort of house on it, and um, and have a nice big block of land with maybe a pool if they're lucky, um, you know, and and live out in the suburbs and still be able to drive their. Ford Falcon or their Holden Kingswood, <laughs> um, which were probably the most common cars back those days, as opposed to, yeah, what are they now? Teslas and all those things. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think most people had either a, a Kingswood or a, uh, a Ford Falcon. That was us, a Kingswood station wagon with the column shift. That's how I learned to drive. But, look, I think that it made a big, uh, big, you know, impact on the city and people remembered, you know, for a very long time People remembered where it flooded in 1974 and they told those stories for a very long time and people did not want to be in a situation where they, you know, could be impacted by such a significant flood event um, at all. And that's why we saw this this conversion or this, this change in the way people wanted to live and more and more people moved out rather than in. But, of course, we fast-tracked forward again, um, you know, and since the, the 1970s, we're now in a, in a different era. And, again, we, we're no longer a small country town. We're now a city and the population continues to grow. And, of course, a lot of infield development has happened. But more so than that, we've become a lot more densely populated. And what that's meant is that accessibility um, for people to get around and move around the city has become a lot more difficult because we're now relying by, on cars 
um, with a very immature public transport network. And a lot of those roads to get into and out of the employment hubs around the city are congested. So before we jump into that next part, I will just jump back again. For those of you that Melinda touched on then are about a column shift in a car. Those of you that are too young to understand that, just Google it, okay? Because those that are old enough will totally understand it, but those that aren't, they're probably wondering what she's talking about. So for the younger people, just Google it and you'll you'll work it out, okay? <laughs> so, so distance-wise from the CBD, and I guess this comes back to the question that we had from Charlie, you know, does that distance, it does it drive that side of thing, and I guess the capital growth side of it, is that the main driver of that capital growth or is it further? What does determine that and how is that? Well, the, the, the fundamental thing that everybody must understand is that capital growth um, at a citywide level, but more importantly, at a local level, is always driven by the balance between the supply of properties in that area and the demand for properties in that area. And that can be at a sub suburb level. Um, or, you know, in a pocket around the city, or it can be at a city level. But remember, the more you drive down into local drivers of supply and demand, the more likely you are to find an area that has higher demand compared with supply. And there's a couple of ways we can look at supply. One, we can look at listing volumes. We can look at how many properties are available for sale in a particular location. But we can also look at the availability of future supply. And that what that means is, is there any more land around that area that has the potential to be subdivided, that has the potential to be redeveloped into new homes? Because if you are able to continue to subdivide land, subdivide land around a particular location, then of course that's going to provide more supply to a given area. And to get capital growth, you mean you need supply to remain extremely tight and you need demand to remain high. You need an imbalance between the two indicators. So locally, when you're looking at a location that drives capital growth, that is how you need to look at the supply side of things. Is there any land available around this region that's going to cause more properties to be built? Secondly, is the land zoning um, conducive to higher density development? Because remember, supply can come through subdivisions of land, but it can also come through um, the creation of higher density development. We saw that through Brisbane um, off the back of the change in the city plan in 2014, where we saw a lot of higher density units being developed and that peak supply hit throughout the city in 2016. And of course, we had a situation of oversupply in that high density inner city unit market, which did impact um, the market as a whole because there were simply too many properties available for sale and not enough buyers to to purchase that stock. So definitely, you know, the supply side of things needs to be looked at, but so does demand. Yeah, so definitely looking at as you as you say there, the areas and you know whether they're areas that can be zoned. When you're talking about zoning, things where you can build townhouses and units and things like that, um, as opposed to just houses. Um, you know, and then also, I guess people need to understand the transport side of things as well. Where there's transport now, what is proposed, how that's going to change, um, and what impact that will have on living in that area as well. Yeah, and that comes down to the demand side of the equation because you know accessibility to employment hubs is one thing that contributes to the demand for a particular location. Now, there's so many other things that also contribute to the demand for a particular location or a property. And those things are more macro indicators such as interest rates. And we know that's 
going to be the same across all locations throughout Australia. But when you've got low interest rates, it means people generally can uh, borrow money or have accessibility to, to a higher amount of money to buy a property. You've also got more local indicators such as um, an improving economy. Um, that gives people confidence to be able to make big financial decisions. That all contributes to the demand for property. But at a more local level, you've got things like desirability. You know, is it the style of, or is it the sort of um, suburb that people want to live? Who lives in that suburb? What's the demographic? You know, how much are they earning? Uh, what's the proportion of owner occupiers to renters in a particular location? What's the school catchment? Is the area gentrifying? Are there good local coffee shops, restaurants, parks? Um, is it a walkable location? Where are the nearby shops, supermarkets, um, lifestyle precincts? All of those things contribute to the demand side of the equation. So, of course, when you are looking for an area that's going to give the best possible capital growth, you want an area that's going to have all of those features that contribute to high demand, but also an area that's um, in very low supply in terms of there's not much available. So when we look at Brisbane, we need to look at areas where there's no potential for future development. It's completely developed. There's no potential for higher density. Um, and yet they're areas that are in high demand. Now, you know, distance from the CBD alone is not going to determine all of those factors. It's just impossible to measure that. However, what we will say is that um, in Brisbane, being a flood impacted uh, suburb, a flood impacted city, it's so important to understand at a local level which areas within each pocket are actually the desirable pockets and which are not, because that is so much more indicative of, you know, the potential for continued demand in the long term than, you know, looking, you know, a measurement distance from the CBD alone. So so one thing which I noticed, I mean, you just sort of talked there for a while and rattled a lot of information off for people. And the one thing you probably didn't mention then, which when you're talking about capital growth, is the house itself. Well, the growth itself comes <laughs> from the land. And this is something that we always talk about. You can never change the location of a property. The land is the appreciating part of the asset. It's the part that is the scarce part. The house itself, whatever sits on the land, that's the um, that's the thing that depreciates. You actually write off the value mm. of the house that sits on the land through depreciation um, as a property investor. So, of course, no, the house does not actually contribute to the growth. Um, what I will say is that in some instances in Brisbane, for example, the the house itself um, or the houses in a particular location can contribute to the desirability of an area because a lot of people are attracted to some suburbs simply because they are, you know, dominated by character Queensland homes, for example. Now, that's going to help on the desirability um, side of the equation, which increases the demand for that area as a whole. But you know, the house itself that sits on the block is not going to be the thing that drives the growth of that property. It's the land and the location that will drive the growth predominantly. So from a builder's point of view, when I look at that, the land does all the hard work hmm. and the house will get older. Um, and that's something you can actually control then. You can control that by doing renovations, refurbishments, improvements. If you can knock it down, rebuild, whatever you like, it's, you can actually control that part. The hard work needs to be done underneath by by the the land to push that capital growth up. 
So Charlie, just um, obviously to wrap your question up, I think it's too simple to assume that you can take, you know, a measurement from the CBD and determine uh, whether that area is going to be a high growth location or not. I think it's far too simple to rely on that as a single indicator, especially in a city like Brisbane. Uh, Brisbane's not like Sydney. Brisbane's not like Melbourne. We are a different city. Historically, we are different. Uh, We're a much younger city. Um, and we are in a different phase of development. You know, we we live differently. Um, we're a lower density city, so it's very hard to draw conclusions from a study that relies predominantly on Sydney and Melbourne data. So I hope that sort of unpacked some value for those listeners that are wanting to understand a little bit more about, you know, Brisbane and what creates or, or makes a high growth location versus um, something that might be, you know, achieving a lower level of growth yeah well hopefully that helped charlie hope that's sort of thrown a little bit of light on there um and um we head into a long weekend this weekend here in queensland um i think some states i think new south wales are the same i'm not sure about all the rest i'm sorry um but uh yeah we're heading into a long weekend so as usual um thank you very much for listening i'll let melinda wrap it up um and we will go and have our long weekend coming up and enjoy that break um and then we'll um we'll look forward to chatting to everyone again next week Until then, take care and bye for now. Not sure what you mean by having a break when we're in the real estate industry. It feels like 24-7 at the moment, especially with the current market conditions here in Brisbane. But um, I hope you get a break. I certainly won't be getting a break, but um, let's see how the weekend pans out. Thank you again for tuning in, everybody. Um, I hope you found some value in this episode once again. If you do enjoy what you hear, please leave us a review. Um, Tell your friends and family about our podcast. And until next week, take care. Bye for now. Thanks for tuning in today. Please remember everything we have spoken about on this podcast is general in nature and we always recommend that you obtain independent advice in relation to your specific circumstances. If you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe or leave us a review on iTunes and of course, tell your friends about us. If you would like to get in contact, please visit www.brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au or email us at info at brisbanepropertypodcast.com.au. Feel free to send in any questions and we will try to answer them in future episodes.